Hello and welcome to episode three of the Undercurrents mini-series on who rules cyberspace. My name is Joyce Hackme. I'm a senior researcher with the International Security Department and the co-editor of the Journal of Cyber Policy. And I'm joined by my colleague, Ben. Hi, Ben. Hello, Joyce. Ben Horton here, communications manager at Chatham House and co-host of the Undercurrents podcast. So in this episode, I spoke to Kasper Klinge, who is the Vice President for European Affairs at Microsoft and the former Danish tech ambassador. Kasper talked about how the nature of cyber threats have inevitably made the private sector first responders in case of cyber attacks, along with police and defense forces. He also talked about the importance of rethinking alliances and coalitions between the different actors who are meant to keep cyberspace safe and stable. And who did you speak to, Ben? So I spoke to Ria Thomas, who is the Managing Director of Polinia Advisory, and she gave us a perspective on what non-tech companies are doing in this space. Obviously, the vast majority of companies that make up the global economy aren't producing tech products, but everybody is implicated in using the internet, trying to make money from the internet, and also having it governed responsibly. So Ria spoke to us a bit about what has been the involvement of these companies so far, and also ways to sort of engage them more deeply in this process and to make them more fully understand the threats that they're facing. Great. Let's have a listen then. I'm delighted to be joined today by Kasper Klinge, who is the Vice President for European Government Affairs at Microsoft and the former Danish Tech Ambassador. Welcome, Kasper. Thanks very much. So, Kasper, Microsoft is one of the key players from the private sector that is involved in shaping cyberspace. Not only does it play an active role in existing processes, but has also initiated a number of its own. What is the incentive behind this involvement and actually what drives this work? Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. And, and to be honest, it's a question that I get quite often. So why is it a, a private company like Microsoft is, is investing so much in, in cybersecurity? And I think there are a number of different reasons for it. But if we begin with the overall answer, that is that I think we live in the 21st century. If you look at, at, at global threats and how we... Uh, relate to them. The fact is that today you have uh, cyber crime, you have cyber attacks that uh, respects no borders whatsoever. Um, and I think when you look at sort of how we respond to that, it's also evident that the private sector will have to play a role. And if you want me to sort of put it into a little bit of a historical context, I think if you go back 10, 15 years and you experienced the criminality, you were probably called the police or if we look at it from a sovereignty point of view, if you had green troops going across your borders, you would probably utilize your, your defense uh, forces. I think the problem with the cyber attacks uh, and the cyber threats that we're experiencing here in 2020 is that, you know, actually the first responders are no longer only police or defense forces. It has to come also from the private sector. And one of the reasons it has to come from, you know, companies like Microsoft is that we have invested a lot of resources in building up critical infrastructure, we have software systems, we have data centers, and, and those are, of course, the infrastructure that are being used to launch these attacks. And these are not just attacks on computers, it's attacks that has a direct impact on you and me, on our healthcare system, 
on our critical infrastructure systems. And we simply have to make sure that we provide a response to that that is proportional to, to the threat levels. And that is, you know, a short version of, of why we're investing heavily, both in, in the bigger norms discussion, but also in, in making sure that we maintain ultimately trust in, uh, in digitalization and technologies that we are so dependent on today. Thank you for, for this. So you're talking about the nature of cyber threats makes it inevitable that the private sector plays a bigger role. And the first responders, as you said, are no longer just the police or government, etc. And this is the attacks are being conducted using the infrastructure that the private sector has created. So with all that in mind, what do you think is stopping other big tech or non-tech companies to play a similarly active role? Is it lack of awareness, lack of commitment or different priorities? What is it in your opinion? Yeah, it's probably a combination of all of it. We're fortunate enough that we have the resources to be able to invest heavily in this. But I'm also going to be very honest in saying that, you know, if we lose trust from citizens or people around the world in digital solutions, I think that would be an enormous lost opportunity as a human being. But also, you know, representing a company like Microsoft, it goes without saying that lack of trust in, in software digital solutions is not good for, for the business either. So that's one of the reasons why we, we are, we're heavily involved in it. But I think it's also fair to say that this requires quite a heavy investment. And in many cases, you almost need sort of a titanic moment to understand that this is not just a theoretical threat, that this is something that really has an enormous impact on, on you as a, as a company or a, for a society. And unfortunately, I think, you know, when you look at the history of, of, of mankind, sometimes it requires a bit of a crisis before you invest the resources necessary to cope with it. And if we go back a couple of years, if I use my, myself as an example, I was an old school uh, government ambassador to, to Indonesia uh, back in 2017 when, uh, when NotPetya and the WannaCry attacks uh, hit, hit us. And it hit one of the biggest Danish companies uh, around very hard. And I, I sort of saw firsthand how devastating this was on the operations of this particular uh, shipping uh, company. So that was sort of the titanic moment for, for that company and to some extent also for, for, for Denmark. I think we've seen, unfortunately, many of those situations around the world. And that raises awareness, but it also raises the necessity of investing in it. Now, that said, I think we also just have to be honest that that's an easier investment for a big technology company like Microsoft than it is for a small and medium-sized enterprise in, in Europe. And that's why on top of doing a lot on our own, we're also trying to invest in you know, multi-stakeholder forums like, uh, like the Paris Call uh, for Trust and Security in, in Cyberspace, because that brings to the table some of these companies that perhaps are a little bit behind uh, on, on making the investments and, and acknowledging how important it is. Short version of it, this is not something we, we enjoy doing, but unfortunately the world is, is such that you do have criminal networks and you have non-state access and state access that are spending a lot of resources in, in, uh, in launching these attacks. And we have to make sure we do everything possible to try and defend our societies from uh, you know, one of the biggest threats, unfortunately, in, uh, in our time and age. As you're saying, this requires a strategic decision that you know, we have to do it. There isn't in a, a different way. You have to be involved. So with this involvement that has been happening in the last few years, what would you say is the biggest impact that the private sector has been able to achieve so far? And taking it a little bit more towards Microsoft in specific, what are your ambitions? Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? 
Yeah, if we if we sort of look at the overall engagement on cybersecurity, I think you can sort of build begin at the very top level. If you look at the norms, or let's say let's call it the traffic rules of international affairs, so that's work that is happening primarily in the United Nations with the open-ended working group and the UNGGE group of governmental affairs that experts that are looking at sort of creating a, a framework for what is acceptable and non-acceptable in cyberspace. I think that's important because to make sure that there is a consensus around what is acceptable in uh, in terms of state behavior in cyberspace. But I think what we're trying to do is actually to connect the dots. So we have the very high level, the traffic rules. We have the low level, which is our technical uh, capabilities of providing you know defensive systems, increasing security for customers and for societies. And you know we have a number of, of activities internally. We have more than three thousand people that are spending all their time on on cybersecurity. But then you have the in between, and that is I, I would point out to something that we are very very uh, happy to support uh, the Paris call for for trust and and security in cyberspace. The interesting thing with with this multi stakeholder uh, event is that it's not only uh, multinational. It's also multi-stakeholder. It brings together both the private sector and uh, the public sector, civil society. And as of today, we have a thousand actors that had signed up to the Paris uh, call, representing actually more than 40% of, of all nations in the United Nations. And if we bring in the civil society sector and, and a few other actors, the private companies, it's actually representing more than 60% of uh, the countries in, in this world. Why is that important? Well, that is important to increase the awareness of the importance of cybersecurity, but it's also important in pushing through appropriate response that defensive mechanisms are being set up across the world, including in, in Europe. So those are important aspects. And the last thing I'll just point to, Joyce, is that when you look at specifically the European Union, we, we've seen a number of uh, things happening in Europe. Uh, and the hot topic right now is, is the so-called NIST Directive, which is a European Union initiative, which is basically also elevating the institutional requirements, the defensive mechanisms in, in Europe. And we want to support sort of the whole uh, supply chain, if you like, because we think actually connecting the dots is the only way we can respond to, you know, unfortunately, one of the biggest threats that we are we're facing right now. And if you allow me, I, I think if we look at the last six months during this global pandemic and COVID-19, that has challenged us on so many levels. It has also increased digitalization. And I would just add that, you know, could you imagine us handling COVID-19 without having access to 21st century technologies? And we were speaking right now on Zoom. We have Teams. All of that is critically important. The flip side of the coin is, of course, that that increases also the vulnerabilities of societies, of citizens, of customers. So while we digitalize, and we probably had two years of digitalization in, in just two months, it is increasingly important that we also follow up with focus on cybersecurity as well. So you, you made it very clear that the, this role of connecting the dots is very important and the private sector has to be there. Do you think that you are trying to reach out to states, but what you can do is limited? How, how do you interpret this? How do you, what, what are your thoughts on this? What I would say is that I think the world is evolving. And if we stay at the meter level and look a little bit on international relations or geopolitics, in the old days, which are in fact not that many years ago, you know, alliances or coalitions traditionally always took place between countries or nation states. I think the challenge is that today, that is still enormously important. I'm, I'm in no way arguing that we shouldn't have the United Nations or NATO or the European Union. 
But what I am saying, and I said the same thing when I was working for the government, is that I think we have to revisit uh, the notion of alliances and, and coalitions because if we want to respond in a systematic way, protecting our core values, protecting human rights, protecting critical infrastructure, that is so, so, so important. I just want to remind people that, you know, you're sitting in the United Kingdom right now. Previous attacks have been directed at the, the National Health Services. We've seen during COVID-19 attacks specifically on hospitals in the Czech Republic. The WHO was attacked using something. So these are not theoretical issues. These are something that has a direct impact. And I think in many ways, it's almost just short of a miracle that we haven't had any real casualties from a cyber attack yet. But I think that requires us really to look at how we team up and how we can ensure that it's all hands on deck. And that, in my view, requires us to rethink alliances and coalitions so we bring in the private sector together with, with governments. And and frankly speaking, I, th I think that understanding is on its way. You know, I'm sorry to say I can't add to the frustration because my experience also in, in, in this job is that there is a lot of interest among, I would call it, responsible countries in Europe or in the US and Asia, et cetera, for involving the private sector, recognizing that you can't do it alone. You simply don't have the insights, you don't have the real-time overview of cyber attacks on, on, on the public side. And similarly, it's not for, for private companies to define you know, rules of, of international relations. So in other words, I don't think there is any way around it. We have to work together, and that's what we're trying to do from our side. So you mentioned your experience uh, working for government and in your role just before this one as Danish tech ambassador. I'm just wondering now that you are sitting on the other side of the aisle, what do you think needs to change in the way governments are engaging in these conversations? You mentioned rethinking alliances. Do you think there's anything else that needs to change? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think I'm sharing a big national secret in saying that I got a little bit of flack in in making the transition from uh, from government to, to to the private sector, but you know, I actually think what I do today is not that different from what I did in my previous job. And if I explain what my previous job was, in many ways, it was about better understanding the technology industry, better understanding what new technologies, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, blockchain, machine learning, what would be the societal impact on that on uh, on countries or regions in, in our case. So it was sort of trying to build bridges between the, the tech industry and uh, and governments. I think my job currently is also about building bridges. To me, this is also about making sure that we develop technologies and solutions that ultimately support Europe's aspirations. So this is not Europe that should adapt or align with, with new technologies. It's new technologies that should align with Europe and make sure that what we do is helpful in you know, rebuilding societies, uh, you know, COVID-19 recovery, etc. But I think my job is also about translating what is happening in Europe to my bosses back home in, in Seattle, in, in Redmond, in the US, because I do think that Europe will remain sort of the epicenter for regulating uh, digitalization or, or the tech industry. We all know that the general data protection regulation will see later this year uh, new ideas coming up on DSA, on cybersecurity, and a number of other topics. And, and I do think we need people on both sides that sort of understand the other side. So I, I don't think there is anything unusual. And in fact, I think we need more people that makes the transition in both directions because ultimately policy reigns supreme. We all understand that, but we also want to make sure that policymakers are completely up to speed with both the potential of new technologies, but also the potential for misuse of new technologies. And, and that dialogue, in my modest, not very objective view, is, is more critical than ever before. 
So it's really about better understanding of technology and reaching out to be encouraged coming from all sides, not just one side trying to reach out to the other. So with that, Casper, uh, unfortunately, we've reached the end of our conversation. Thank you very much for uh, your insights, for sharing with us your views. And we look forward to continuing this conversation with you at a later stage. Thanks very much. It's always a pleasure to be with Chatham House. Thanks a lot. Okay, so now I'm joined by Ria Thomas, who is the Managing Director of Polinia Advisory Limited, a new firm advising boards of directors, executive committees and senior leaderships from global firms on business-based cyber risks and the innovative growth-focused corporate governance strategies that are required for cyber resilience. Prior to this, Ria was the Brunswick Group's global co-lead for cybersecurity. Ria, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Ben. It's a pleasure to be with you. So when we look at the role of the private sector in this cyberspace debate, we see primarily the big tech companies leading these efforts. Why don't we see other sort of big non-tech companies taking part in this? So this is an issue that has been fascinating me for a while, because every time I attend a conference or I'm in closed door meetings, I've noticed that one, the, the private sector voice is rather muted and it usually tends to be dominated by the big tech companies. And one of the things that has occurred to me is that I think it comes down to a fundamental issue that non-tech global companies are facing, which is that they don't perceive cyber and, and especially the policymaking around cyber and cyber warfare as being particularly relevant to them or something that's an existential threat to their core business model. The big tech companies do, which is why they are so heavily involved. And what I find interesting about that is why not? And I think it comes down to the fact that they have not necessarily been engaged either internally within their organization on these types of discussions, nor externally. So whether it's governments having intergovernmental discussions or big tech companies shaping the discussion, they are not necessarily being brought along to the table for it. And that's why I think they are fundamentally not involved in this discussion. So what do you think non-tech companies can bring to this conversation? What's, what's the added value? What perspectives might they bring in that the tech companies don't necessarily have? From where I sit, this conversation, because it has been so heavily dominated by governments and by the big tech companies, it's really missing some of the nuances in terms of why this is important to broader society. And what I mean by that is I think most people uh, really perceive, especially big tech companies, as having their own potential interests in terms of protecting their business interests. And they don't necessarily see why it is that this issue is going to be of particular importance to the broader public. And what I mean by that is when you have the voices of different companies that provide critical services that protect our economy, that service the, the critical needs that we have. So whether it is food supply, whether it's getting access to clean water, mm. whether it's energy, when people understand that those are the types of businesses that are going to be disrupted, if there is a targeted nation state attack against those types of companies, it brings it home that this conversation about cyberspace can't just be a technical policy-oriented discussion, but rather that it's about protecting the rights of every single human being that's out there. And in order to do that, you need to make sure that the voices at the table reflect the various impacts that we're all going to face. And so the, the, the non-tech companies bring something unique in that because they are really the backbone of these types of services, 
for us to understand what the impact is if they are directly targeted, it's going to be critical in terms of shaping the conversation. And do you think in your conversations with leadership in the big non-tech companies, do you find that they are very keen to be getting involved in these conversations and bringing those perspectives? Do you think that there's an acceptance from their side that these really are risks that need to be taken seriously? So I actually don't see that. Uh, And I I don't think it's because they don't necessarily care about the issue. I think it's because it hasn't been necessarily presented to them in a way that makes it easier for them to understand why this is a strategic issue that they need to focus their attention on. And and the reason is, is twofold. One, when cyber is being discussed inside a company, what I've noticed is that the ownership of that risk is actually splintered within the company. So for example, when cyber is being discussed, the the onus, the burden, the responsibility is primarily on whoever is leading the cybersecurity or the technical teams of that firm. And those individuals tend to be focused on what the technical risks are, including what potential attacks may mean from a nation state. But they're looking at the technical measures and the investments that are required. Government affairs folks, when they get involved, are focusing perhaps on policies that might lead to regulations that would require compliance for the company. So it's more of a reactive approach to what is happening in the policymaking world, rather than thinking, what are some of the critical issues that come up for us that we need to engage with? So for example, most companies who are global firms, not tech companies, they don't necessarily see that if there is a nation state attack against them, that is because they're considered the fundamental backbone, the economic or national security backbone of their country. They don't necessarily understand what the implications are. They assume that means that they and their own government are going to have aligned interests. The reality is that, yes, you are going to see that your own government can be a resource and an ally, but your government is going to be focused on the national security and the economic security of your country, and your interests are going to be trying to protect your shareholder value, trying to protect your business interests, and they don't always align. And in two instances, that can come up. One is, if it is a nation-state attack, and your government comes in, at some point, they may decide very likely to classify the investigation because they need to protect what has happened as they're doing their investigation. Now, the challenge you're going to face is you are a global firm operating in multiple markets, and you're going to have regulators and other government entities in different markets demanding information from you, including, by the way, your customers and your partners. And now, because of the classified nature of the investigation, you're limited in terms of what it is that you can say to them. What you need to engage with the government from the very beginning is to understand how are your broader business interests going to be protected in an instance like that. Another issue that might come up if you're part of a nation state attack is that the insurance that you carry may not cover the damages you have if your government declares this to be a political act of war. In that case, what happens to the damages you face? Who's going to cover it? When is it that your own government is going to come in? These are bigger, broader strategic issues than compliance related to a potential regulatory framework that's coming up with regard to cybersecurity. Those regulatory frameworks are from the point of view of protecting both the government interests and the broader public interests in terms of ensuring that you are complying with the the needs that the government has. To me, in order for the broader board level discussion to really be ignited, it's very important that they understand that these broader strategic issues that are particular to them are not necessarily being discussed or being shaped the way they would like it to be at this point in time. I guess then, if we were looking ahead, what would you 
recommend would be the effective way of doing this. You've pointed out the reasons why current company structures aren't really suited to thinking about these threats in a coherent way. If you were setting up a a major non-tech global firm tomorrow, how would you develop, like what structures would you put in place within a company in terms of leading on these efforts? So this requires a fundamental mind shift in terms of how cyber is being viewed as a risk. And it's happening, but it's happening as a reaction to a large scale attack that they may have faced, rather than, as you said, how do you set it up from the beginning? From my perspective, the the most resilient companies are the ones that understand that cyber needs to be looked at as both a technical and a broader organizational risk. While organizations are starting to do it, they're not necessarily bringing together a team from across the organization. So you need to have people not just who are cyber and IT experts from your senior leadership, but the involvement of HR, the involvement of legal, the involvement of communications, the involvement of government affairs to really give you a holistic perspective on what these various issues around cyber mean for you and what that means in terms of the governance that you want to set up, how often you want to be informed, how often they're integrating their various perspectives so that you have a clear understanding of what's needed and what decisions you need to make. That, frankly, is starting to happen, but it's really at early stages. And and to answer your question about, you know, how do we shift that perspective? That really comes down to me both internally and externally. Yes, you can have people who are champions inside who get this. And and sometimes that's the cyber and IT teams who want to start engaging with the broader company, their colleagues, in order to share the responsibility and share the burden of what this risk is. But oftentimes, there is no one else who's willing to engage. So on the one hand, you might need an internal champion who who actually brings together the cross-organizational team. On the other hand, I do think there are things that externally can be done in terms of other stakeholders that can start to shape and shift this conversation about why non-tech big companies need to be involved in this discussion. So thinking then finally about this kind of external engagement beyond a specific organization or corporation, where do you think these non-tech big firms can engage in the policy processes around cybersecurity? Obviously, a lot of the conversations we've had as part of this series this week have looked at the UN Open-Ended Working Group on cybersecurity. Do you think that there is a space for, for corporations to engage with that process? And if not, do you think that there are other good avenues for engagement at the political level? So I think this is going to depend on the type of organization and and what their particular business model is, right? So for the tech companies, that's relatively apparent why they are involved, especially in the discussions at the UN. I don't necessarily think that a large global firm that's a non-tech company needs to immediately become involved in the UN discussions on this issue. I think perhaps there are several areas where they can get involved. So the first is, as I mentioned earlier, is to really engage with their own government or governments in key markets about what the implications are if there is a nation state attack that disrupts this business's operations and what that means for them in terms of what they can expect from these governments. That I think is a, is a critical area to start. The second, and and in Europe in particular, I think this is still a conversation that's evolving, which is about how within one's own industry, how do you actually engage, whether it's with your competitors or peers, about what these particular issues mean for your industry. And more often than not, I've seen that there is a lack of sharing 
about what the threat is and what it is that they themselves have faced. Now, certain industries like the financial services industry are much more on the front end of of these types of discussions. But I do believe that if other global companies, whether that's in the transportation sector, whether that's in aviation, energy, et cetera, start to have these broader discussions internally, that will make a big difference. Then third, and this is where I do think there is a responsibility, perhaps on the part of the the big tech companies, to, to bring in a cross-industry discussion. Now, there is some of it. Uh, if you think of the Paris call, for example, non-tech companies have signed up as agreeing to some of the principles of operating in cyberspace. But that still tends to be a government affairs to a government affairs discussion. What I'm saying is this needs to be a, an executive board to an executive board level discussion and something where it's very much an engagement at the senior levels about what these strategic issues mean and, and how it is that they need to bring, not necessarily pressure, but their voices to the table to shape what this conversation is. And then finally, I do think that there is an onus on the broader discussions and the people who are leading those discussions. And that could be those who are hosting conferences, for example. I'm often surprised at how few non-tech companies are at the table on panels, speaking, presenting. And when they are present, they they tend to potentially look at the technical aspects. It might be the CISO of of a a non-tech company. What I'm saying is bring in, say, for example, the general counsels, bring in the corporate affairs people to talk about what these types of issues mean for a company that could face a sustained attack from a nation state. And those are the ways that I would say that they can engage and they can be engaged in this conversation. Maria Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. So that's it for this episode of Who Rules Cyberspace, the Chatham House mini-series on the Undercurrents podcast feed. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear the rest of our output in this series, then please do subscribe to Undercurrents on whichever podcast app you use. And if you've enjoyed it a lot, we would love it if you would leave us a review because it makes it far easier for other people to find us. If you'd like to hear more about the work that Joyce, Hakme and the team in the International Security Programme are doing, you can follow them on Twitter at Chatham House ISR. Of course, huge thanks need to go to Esther Naylor in the International Security Programme who has put this series together and has provided editing support. And also thank you to Jamie Reed, our sound producer for Undercurrents, who has been with us throughout this crazy year of, of enormous amounts of podcast output. And of course, thank you to the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their support of the Cyberspace for All projects. We'll be back tomorrow with some more exciting conversations. Until then, I'm Ben Horton and you've been listening to Undercurrents.